This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and I am your host today. Joining me is Will Bushman, our Director of Student Ministries. Great to be here. We're getting into a pretty uncomfortable topic today. It's where God... If we make it far enough in the episode today, we're going to be trying to tackle Genesis 18 and 19, or at least the first part of Genesis 19, where God comes to one of his most famous acts of judgment in the entire Bible. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. So, but this begins with the Lord showing up in Genesis chapter 18 to reaffirm the promises that he has made to Abram. And so we talked last episode about how Abram has, or Abraham now, has all of these plan Bs. You know, he originally shows up with Lot, and Lot is going to be the heir. And then it's Eliezer of Damascus, his servant, who's going to be the heir. Then it's going to be Ishmael, right, who's going to be the heir. But in the last chapter, he comes back to them. Now, you got to remember, they're up in years. They're up in years at this point. Ishmael, they're thinking, hey, he's our guy. He's going to be the one who carries on the covenant. And God comes and says, no, in fact, I'm reaffirming, Abraham, I'm going to bring you a son, and Sarah, the son is going to be through you, and he changes her name from Sarai, which means my princess, to Sarah, which means the princess of many. It's a broader term, which means she's in on this promise. And so when we come to Genesis chapter 18, it is the Lord coming with two angels, and it's going, he's going to have a twofold purpose here. One, he is going to reaffirm the covenant again, and then he's going to inform Abram that the the home city of his nephew Lot is about to be wiped off the surface of the earth. Yeah, so we're going to see God come back to him again, right? For Abraham, he's getting a lot of interaction with God just about this one promise. So even this one, it's pretty amazing that God again circles back and makes it clear to both Sarah and Abraham that he is going to do this. That's right. But you got to remember that all of this from the very first time that he comes to Abraham to the very last before Isaac's born is spread out over 25 years. Okay. So it's not like God is coming around every Tuesday. You know, these these are big encounters that have oftentimes years in between them. And so the first one is going to be pretty special, though. And Abraham gets it. He knows it's pretty special. It says, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre. And this is a very important spot. It's a Hebron. It's it's one of the places where he erected an altar at the beginning. And what happens here is going to be really, really sacred to Abram. And we'll talk about why that is and what we'll see later in Genesis 23. But it says, so he comes and appears to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre while he was sitting at the entrance in his tent in the heat of the day. And I want you to pay attention to how this text deliberately is going back and forth. So it's the Lord who appears to Abraham, right? So he's definitely in this. The the Hebrew word there is Yahweh. So this is God, the Lord. And it says, Abram looked up and saw three men standing nearby. And there's been debate all throughout history over who these three men are. Is it is it Yahweh God 
and two angels. Some have tried to make the case that this is the Trinity. I don't, I don't believe that because these two other beings, these angels, are the ones who go to Sodom, we'll see. So this is Yahweh God and two angels. And it says, When Abram saw him, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. So there's something about the way that that God appears in this what's called a theophany where God appears in some kind of a form that we can we can see and interact with that is not all the glory of God of heaven but as soon as Abram sees him and these two angels he recognizes this is someone I need to race to go serve and I need to bow before them when I get to them yeah Abram recognized him as a lord at this point not maybe knowing that it's God God right mhm correct okay he recognizes that at a minimum we see that he knows that he is subservient to them. Because it says in, in verse 3, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord. Now that word Lord there is not Yahweh. It's Adon, which means like master. You, you're in charge of me. I recognize you're in authority here. Do not pass your servant by. So there it is. You're the master. I'm the servant. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under this tree. Let me let, let me get you something to eat so you can be refreshed, and then go on your way now that you have come to your servant. Very well, they answered. Do as you say. And so what it's telling you is Abraham has tremendous hospitality. It's, it's setting you up for something that's going to be contrasted in the next chapter because when you get to Sodom, the hospitality is really bad, <laughs> right? And so... Very well, they answered, do as you say. So Abraham hurried into the tent of Sarah. Quick, get three seahs of fine flour and knead it and bake some bread. And he ran to the herd and selected a choice tender calf and gave it to his servant who hurried to prepare it. And then he bought, brought some curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set these before them. And while they ate, he stood near them under a tree. And so he goes and makes this elaborate feast. And notice he gives the entire feast to them. He's not sitting there. Sarah's not sitting there. The servants aren't sitting there. He makes this elaborate feast for the three of them. Sacrifices the animal, gets the curds. In other words, this in the ancient world, what we just described would have been an elaborate feast. He recognizes that these people, this, these three, the Lord and his angels, are worthy of great, great honor. Yeah, we see Abraham doing things right again, right? He's back on yeah. the right track. like. No one's asking him to do this. No one's forcing him to do this, right? He's doing all of this, and it's kind of the, here's Abraham, still in a tent, which is fascinating because all is both, and he's still mm-hmm. living like he always has, but you can see he has the ability to get all this stuff pretty instantly and elaborately for mm-hmm. these guys, which is cool. Yeah, I mean, he's his herds are massive, Yeah, and he's still living in tents. You know, everyone else wants to build a city or a palace or some permanent yeah. thing or what they think is permanent. But as you see in in the book of Hebrews, it says he lived in tents because he was looking forward to a better city, Hmm. a city built by God. And so, but I want you to to see where the Lord's attention is, right? So here's God. He comes into town, you know, or whatever, the village, the the herd. (laughs) And Abraham is like, oh my goodness, it's it's the Lord. It's I gotta serve him and run around and get everything ready. And he's throwing it all before the Lord. And you got to imagine Abraham's there like, eh, how's the food? You know, give, give, give me some <laughs> feedback. Yeah, give me some feedback. Honor me. And what, what do they ask? Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. Now, remember last week, you know, Sarah has to be wondering, 
did I lose out on the covenant when yeah. I gave my maidservant? You know, Ishmael has been seemingly in the driver's seat for 13 years. Abraham has had front roll in all of this. And here's Abraham's chance to be putting on a dinner party or a, a lunch party or whatever this is, dinner party for the Lord. And the Lord's question is, where's Sarah? Hmm. Yeah, always bringing attention back to Sarah. She's yeah. seen, she's looking to be seen. God's always like, I see you. Yeah, it's really cool. And so Abraham's like, oh, there in the tent, he said. And the Lord says, I will surely return to you about this time next year. And Sarah, your wife, will have a son. So Ooh. now it's like prior to this point, this is this has been 24 years in the making to this point. And now God's finally put a deadline. This time mm-hmm. next year, you're going to have a baby. And so it's like, okay, we're no longer waiting and hoping for God to move. Now he said, here's your deadline. Like, here's the due date. You're going to have a baby. And so it says, now Sarah was listening at the entrance of the tent, which was behind him. Obviously. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah. You aren't just going to let this conversation happen without you hearing it. Yeah. (laughs) The fact that she's still in the tent is like, come on out. Like, what are you doing? Um, So now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent. What's going on out there? Which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already old. They were well advanced in years. Postmenopausal. Childbearing's like impossible. And it says Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, after I'm worn out and my master is old, will I now have this pleasure? And there's there's words there that are pretty cool um, that are kind of behind the words in the Hebrew, but that word laughter um, is where we get Yitzhak, which is going to be the name of this baby, Isaac. <laughs> it's the Hebrew word, and it means literally laughter. And so she's laughing at God like, yeah, right. And the other part of this is, will I have this pleasure? The The root word in that pleasure actually comes from it's where we get Eden. <laughs> and so it's like, are you going to restore something that is is so pleasurable? It's paradisical to me. And it says, then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? This is the big point. So it's, which makes you wonder, like, all right, she's right there. I mean, <laughs> go ask her. But he's speaking to her, to Abraham, if that makes sense. Yeah. Why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year, and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid. And so even though the Lord's talking to Abraham, she's like, oh, God, coming out like, oh, let me let me clarify. Yeah. So she lied and said, I didn't laugh. I feel like it, this is like middle school impact. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I didn't do that. Straight line. But the chocolate faces. is all over your face. Yeah. Like, don't tell me you didn't eat the chocolate bar. I was there. I get why she's doing that, though. She thought she was laughing in the tent by herself. No one's going to hear yeah. But this is just classic God stuff. You know, he knows everything. Yeah, and That happens all the time in the Gospels with Jesus. People mm-hmm. are just thinking things around him. He's like, nope, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> that that would be really bizarre. But it's true. God knows your every thought. Yeah. It's it's David in Psalm what, 139, where it's like, there's nowhere to hide. Yeah. You know, like heights of heaven, depths of Sheol, no matter what. You're you're there, you see me, and it's both a comfort and a terrorizing thought yes. all at the same time. So poor woman, just laughing to herself. <laughs> Yeah. I mean, you got to imagine it's 24 years. Like, okay, I've been hearing this promise from my husband every year now. Ha ha ha. This is, this is rich. So she's like, I didn't laugh. And he said, uh, yes, you did laugh. <laughs> he just calls her straight up out. And so 
all of this is that like they they get up to leave but they wanted to come and what are they focused on the whole time where's sarah hmm. yeah you know i i want her to hear this i'm going to interact with her before this abraham had been the one that laughed at god mm-hmm. if you remember earlier now you have sarah who's laughing at god and they're both r- laughing with kind of a, a ridiculing kind of laughter but the name Isaac, God's like, yeah, you're going to laugh, but you're going to laugh for a different reason. And the the name Isaac, like it, that laughter becomes triumphant. Like, I can't believe God did this. So this is where you get a, you know, the, the record makes the, the weird noise and we're shifting now into something that's rather unpleasant. And so this is where God is going to tell Abraham that the, the hometown of his nephew is about to be scorched and removed from the earth says when the men talking about the three that's the lord and uh, the two angels which is interesting that it refers to them as men when the men got up to leave they looked down toward sodom and abram walked along with them to see them on their way then the lord okay so we're back at the lord so it's conflating the two you're to see that the lord said Shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him, for I have chosen him, so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, and this is is going to be to explain what's happening He says, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I'll know. And so there's a couple of things that are head scratchers in that statement. First one is, if you know anything about Canaanite culture in the ancient world, it is outrageously wicked. Hmm. Like every city of the plains through that region unbelievably wicked they they celebrated child sacrifice they mm. they engaged in worship at with cult prostitutes and orgies the sexual ethic the sanctity of life there was none of that it was totally disgusting in all of the cities of this region at that time and yet what he's saying is the outcry from this region about the wickedness of sodom is so great that it's come to me which means sodom is far more wicked mm. than the canaanites and it's like what do you have to be doing yeah. <laughs> That in the land of these Canaanites, you stand out as the most wicked. Yeah, like you're a beacon in the sky. People yeah, are like, of darkness. Place. Yeah, yeah, you're <laughs> yeah. like, don't want to go there. Yeah, just stay away from that place because they're far worse than all the Canaanite cities where they're sacrificing children and engaging in You think orders. that would be the worst? Yeah, well, how do you, how do you get Child worse? Child sacrifice seems like bottom of the barrel. Yeah, I mean, really, how do you get worse? I mean, that's what well, we're, we're, we're gonna going find to out. see, I think, or at least share the theory. So... So that's where we're at. And it says, the men turned away and went toward Sodom. So remember, these two angels go into Sodom. They have the appearance of men. And so the Lord has announced this. The two men, the angels, turn away and go to Sodom. But Abraham remained there standing before the Lord. So he recognizes where the authority is. He doesn't stand in front of the angels going, no, 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 no. He says, I know who makes the call here. So I'm going to have it out with the Lord. Um, and this is a judicial pose there. The, the Hebrew, when it says standing before the Lord, 
is something that's used in a judicial context, like you're pleading a case on behalf like you're of approaching somebody. approaching the bench. That's correct. That's it. So Abraham is doing that on behalf of Sodom. It's like he's standing there as the defense attorney for the people of Sodom. And it says Abraham approached him, like approaching the bench, and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked. Treating the righteous and the wicked alike, far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? And the Lord said, if I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. So this is not funny. It's not a funny time, but it's even like Abraham knows like 50 is not a big number. No. Like in a large city, he even was doing some calculations like, all right, how many can we find? How many can we find? Let's start with (laughs) mm, big number, big number 50. Yeah. Like, and he's going to work his way down, but like he even understands to some degree, you know, he's trying his best to Mm -hmm. stand the gap for these people. But even in his mind, he's like, man, 50. (laughs) So, I mean, you let for content, Abraham is living out intense and he can pull together 318 men okay so for for an army right sodom is the biggest city of the region it's the ruins of what we believe is to be sodom is five times bigger than ancient jericho which was the biggest city in the region where abraham was Mm. so this is a massive city okay so 50 is not a big number you know it's you know it's it's a challenge but it's not a big number and so the Lord's like, sure, okay. If I can find, if you can find fifty people in the whole city that are righteous, I'll spare it. And immediately Abraham's like, Uh-oh. oh yeah, I, I know Sodom. You know, I, I rescued these guys. You know, on the long march back, I got to see all of them. I, I got to know. Yeah. <laughs> and he's like, mm, well, how about forty-five, right? And so Abraham speaks up again and says, "Now that I've been so bold as to speak to the Lord, though I am nothing but dust and ashes, right? He's 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 making his case, but he's nervous about this." What if the number of the righteous is five less than 50? Will, will you destroy the whole city because of just these five people? God says, all right, if I find 45 there, I'll not destroy it. So Abraham speaks up again, and this is going to become repetitive. What if it's 40? God says, I won't do it. What if he, he pipes up and says, oh, may the Lord not be angry, but let me speak. What if 30 can be found? All right, I'll spare the city for 30. Then Abraham says, let me be so bold as to speak again. What if 20 can be found there. And God says, okay, for 20, I won't destroy it. And then he says, well, how about 10 is the idea? And that's the last, that's the last number he throws out there. And God says, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. When the Lord had finished speaking with Abram, he left and Abraham returned home. And so what is the, what's the main idea there? That he can't even find 10 righteous people. One that he cannot find 10 righteous people. But there's something in this that is, it points us to the gospel. It says, if you can find one righteous person, God will show mercy to the many for the sake of the one. He will withhold justice. He will, he will demonstrate patience for the sake of the righteous. And in the New Testament, it's kind of hard to believe, but Lot is referred to as righteous, and he's going to be escorted out of the city. But the reality is Lot's righteousness is entirely by faith. You're going to see lots of train wreck. You know, as we get into Genesis 19, he does some things where you're like, what is wrong with this guy? Gross. And yet, because of faith, he's righteous. But there's only one righteous person who has ever lived 
on this planet by his own merit, and that's Jesus. And in this passage, you find that anybody who takes up citizenship in his city, the the city of heaven, the heavenly Mm. city, is shown mercy for the righteousness of the one. They are then imputed into his righteousness and shown mercy and grace. But it's 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 a it's a cool teaching moment where God is saying to Abraham, "My mercy will extend to the many for the sake of the one." Hmm. That's gospel, and even just that God would allow Abraham to even have that. That God had that conversation with Abraham at all. Mm-hmm. Like I I think it is interesting as a person, haggling's a bad word, but to be in a conversation with God when you're looking for something from him. And I think Abraham, like he said all the time, he was bold, but also he was respectful, you know? Mm-hmm. So it was an interesting thing to read and just kind of how to do that well as people. Yeah. Hey, I'm, I'm, but like you're coming, he's interceding for these people who, by the way, you, as he's negotiating, when God says, okay, let, he keeps having to lower the number because quite frankly, there are no righteous people in Sodom apart from Lot's house of faith. And Abraham is constantly having to admit, like, okay, yeah, uh, how about 10? <laughs> you know, yeah. he's, he's, he's negotiating with God. And yet, what he's doing is he is pleading mm. for the mercy of those that he knows are unsaved and unethical. And there's a real heart inside Abram that looks at the judgment of God, and you can't deny the justice of it, right? Abraham looks at God and says, you know what? You're absolutely right that if they're wicked, they deserve to perish. And that doesn't call your justice and your goodness into question. Mm. He can only appeal and say, but what if there's someone good there? Yeah. And and that's kind of where we're at. Like when, when we go to appeal uh, salvation, it's like God would be just if he turned me into a stinking pile of ash. Like on my own merits, I rebel, I'm wicked, I do things that are contrary, I war for his throne. And yet, like when when we go and appeal for God's mercy to somebody, we don't say, "Oh no, no, no! Come on, Sam is he's good enough." And don't make that case. You make the case that Christ is good enough, and then you plead for God to show mercy based on the righteous one. Yeah, and I've always wondered why Abraham did this. But now that we've been going through this in a little more detail than I probably ever have before, now I know that he was with these guys. Mm-hmm. Like he saved these people already once in 14. So that makes sense to me now. Mm-hmm. Like whenever I've heard the story of Sodom, it's kind of just been out of context. Mm-hmm. It's kind of just been like, here's one episode about Sodom. We're not going to talk about anything that happens around it. So this <laughs> is going to be super confusing about yeah. why this is happening. But even makes sense. Like Abraham knows, like you said, that. Man, they're they're messy. They're messed up. They need mm-hmm. God, and they just can't figure themselves out. And this would be the end to that discussion for yeah. them. And the, this region, when you get into the kind of Canaanite territories that are around the Jordan River and everything, this is a particularly wicked culture that's mm-hmm. here. But you got to remember, Abraham spent the first seventy-five years of his life in pagan cultures in the city of Ur and Haran, and we don't. Their cultures are also wicked. When you worshiped fertility cults, like that your worship was different, let's just put it that way. <laughs> and it was wicked. And it's like he can look at them, and it's not like at the age of 75 he starts following God and all of a sudden he's, oh, Abraham, yeah. you know. Like he remembers, hey, I, I used to do that stuff. Yeah. That's me. Oh, that's... And yet you showed me mercy. You mm. called me out of that. So God, like, Man, have mercy on them. I see their stupidity. I see the way that they chase after all this kind of gross perversion and awful things. Yet, you showed mercy on me. 
So he he's approaching the Lord, recognizing they deserve justice, but man, I want you to show them the same kind of mercy you showed to me, even though I deserved justice. And that's that's the appeal. He's yeah. not calling God's justice mm-hmm. into question. He's he's saying, hey, if there's ten, would you do that? And God is saying, absolutely not. Of course not. Yeah. So it's cool. So now you get to Genesis 19. Bum, bum, bum. And so Abraham's mercy, right? Where the, the biblical ethic is you are not to judge other people. Your job as a follower of God is to extend mercy, like real world justice, to protect the poor and, and to make sure that the scales of justice are not bent and all that. Like you're to have those things, but it's ultimately God who is left to judge the souls of people. And here you see Abraham, who's been commended for showing mercy to the people of Sodom before, was being commended by the very God who knew that Genesis 19 was on the way when he is literally about Hmm. to pour out his judgment on them. And that's not a contradiction. We are are called to, to exemplify mercy to people, even if it's a certainty even if we knew that God was going to judge them and send them to eternal torment and damnation, the call of a Christian is mercy anyway. He commends Abraham for it, and that's something we learn from. But he, here in 19, he's about to pour out us judgment on a city where the whole region is saying, hey, you know how wicked we are? <laughs> Sodom's way worse. You should see what they're doing. So this is like the pinnacle of wickedness of the region. And how much time has passed since 14 and 19? I'm guessing probably 20 years. And we forget about the graciousness of God, and even that, after Abraham saved them, they had a chance Mm -hmm. to turn. Like, they had a chance to turn to the God who saved them, and then we know now time has passed, and they're still not. Mm -hmm. So you got to remember, like, the king of Sodom and Melchizedek, you remember who Melchizedek is, right? I do. It's Jesus, the the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the the priest of God, most high, all that, you know, bring in the emblems of communion, and Abraham gives him a tenth of everything he has. This is the Lord. In that moment where where Abraham comes back and he's standing right outside the, the walls of Salem, which is Jerusalem, there's the king of Sodom standing right next to Melchizedek hmm. in the same passage. Like it's it's almost like, hey, they've met. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they they've been close to each other. And you have Abraham who's like, he's talking to the king of Sodom about the Lord, right? I, I serve the Lord. I promised him I wouldn't, you know, take anything from you. And the king of Sodom's like, fine, all right, peace. He he wants they want nothing to do with the Lord. They're not willing to change yeah. or to to accept any other sort of lifestyle. Um, which becomes very interesting when you start looking at who Sodom is as a city. So, starting in chapter 19, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city, which means Lot, at this point, when you sat in the gates of a city, it meant that you were probably influential. That's okay. where that's where you held trial. It's where rulers issued judgments. It's so he's he's at the this is his this is his city. Okay. This is his city. If you're at the gates of a city, he's no longer on the outskirts in a tent. He's at the gates of the city. So when he saw these two angels come in, he got up to meet them, bowed down to his face to the ground. And what 19 is doing, if you take a moment and look at 18 verses 19, a lot of the same hospitality that you see Abraham showing to the Lord and these two angels where he gets up and goes out and bows down and then rushes to prepare a meal and 
it's all echoed. And what is it telling you? It's telling you Lot is extending that same virtue of hospitality to the Lord, to the Lord's people. He recognizes that there's something different about these people where everyone else seems to miss it, right? Everyone else in the city seems to miss it. He says, my lords, so immediately he's recognizing again their position, he is subservient to them. My lords, he said, please turn aside into your servant's house, same language that Abraham used. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go your way in the morning. And so he's saying, you know, the whole washing of the feet thing is there. So he's being hospitable, and no, they answered. We will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. So these Lot knows it is very unsafe for you to be out on the streets in Sodom in the evening as strangers to this city. So hang on to that said he prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. So where Abraham is you know, slaughtering an animal and getting curds, and he puts on this extravagant feast, Lot's at least baking bread. Okay. You know, but it's still, it's, it's, it's hospitality. Something. It's something. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot. Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, do not do this wicked thing. Look, I I have two daughters who've never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you. And you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Just gross. Yeah. As somebody with a daughter, that's unthinkable to me. Like I would, I would put myself outside the door before I would be like, "Oh, I've got two daughters." Yeah, it's like, not a good first thought. So, Lot. This is why when you look at the New Testament and you see him described as a righteous Lot in one place, you're like, "What does he do that's righteous?" You know, the first time you really get to know him, what is he saying? You know, my I'm getting wealthy, Abraham. You're getting in the way. Let's split. Yeah, Uncle Abraham, you're not worth it. I want this cash. Yeah, so that's kind of gross. Now you're, and he then he after all the stuff that happens, he still goes back to Sodom even after getting captured by the empire in Genesis 14. He doesn't try to reconcile or go back home. He loves his wealth. Now you find that he's gone from being in a tent outside the city of Sodom to where he's now in the gates of Sodom. So it's like he's becoming more and more ingrained in the city. Then you're going to find, you know, as this chapter goes on, more things that are not all that great about Lot. And it's like, where does the righteous part come in? And you know what it is? He goes with the angels. Hmm. I mean, that's that's the only righteous thing. Like, (laughs) he he shows faith in believing the warning of the angels, and for that he's righteous, Lot. That's all. That's wild to me. It's almost offensive to call him righteous lot, isn't it? Yeah, it goes against what we, yeah, because it goes against, he didn't earn it. You know, we still like Mm -hmm. that. We still live by that ethic a lot. But this, I mean, this is gross. Like you're talking about your own daughters. This makes you want to just dislike him and hate him. But I'll tell you this, in the ancient world, this kind of treatment of women was commonplace. Mm -hmm. And so even your daughter's were considered dehumanized next to your sons or a man, which is just gross. Like we don't, we don't understand how much 
the Judeo-Christian ethics that came along with the spread of Christianity gave dignity to the lower, what were traditionally seen as the lower classes of humanity, like slaves and women and the poor and the sick. It elevated humanity to where they were all seen with the image of God. And this culture, it is not the presupposition of people. And so that's Lot's operating principle. And we do some backtracking here because this, I mean, just a crazy story. But there is some ability to understand this a little more these days, right? Completely. So so what happens, and this is something that's in the last five years or so, maybe more than that now, they believe that they have found historical Sodom, and I'm of the opinion that there's there's merit to this argument. So there's a guy who's an archaeologist whose name is Stephen Collins, and he decided that he was going to go over using the Bible to try to figure out where we should find Sodom. And so he looks at Genesis 13, and it says that Lot looked at, lifted up his eyes, and he looked beyond the Jordan from the city of Ai, and he saw a plain that was well watered like the Garden of the Lord. And so you should be able to see it from Bethel and Ai. And sure enough, he goes over there and starts digging around, finds an ancient abandoned mound where there's ruins of a city, starts digging, and he finds, and it's, it, today it's called Tal al-Hamam. And in this place, he finds a city that was gargantuan okay. in the ancient world. It fits Sodom like a T. The architecture, the, the, the size, the fortifications, everything is as you would expect it to be. And then what he found was that there was some kind of massive destruction that happened to this city in the middle of the Middle Bronze Age period, which is right where Abraham should be, that burned the city to the ground and decimated it with a powerful destruction. And so he's digging around in this place, and you see, you know, he the first place he digs was actually where the palace was. He calls it the Red Palace because all the mud bricks had been so burned that they all turned discolored red. He found that the remains and skeletons were burned really badly. But then as he starts really analyzing the stuff, and all this has been published in Newsweek and all, you know, all the news venues and everything else, as he's going through this, he starts finding pottery that is so scorched that it actually has turned into what's called Trinitite rock. And Trinitite rock got its name from the Trinity blast when they did the atomic bomb testing in New Mexico. The heat that was exerted from this atomic blast was so massive that it actually caused rocks to blister. And this happened to the pottery. And this would require it to be thousands of degrees like i want to say it's four thousand degrees like there's no human way of burning a house fire is 1200 degrees so this is way beyond what we're used to it turned the sand into glass the compression and pressure of different things actually formed little carbon diamondoids like diamonds in there which diamonds take you know for, forever for pressure to form a diamond this was formed instantaneously and so when they looked at the damage of all the ruins, they figured this had to be caused by a meteorite. Yeah. And so then they started studying all the other ruins around this area, and everything had been pushed to, to the northeast, which meant a, a meteorite had hit this region in the Middle Bronze Age period, shoved everything to the northeast. It had been so hot, so hot, that it was thousands of degrees Fahrenheit, transformed the sand into glass, made trinitite rocks, out of the pottery with blisters and everything else. And now they go through and they find that the whole region 
which remember when 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 we're hearing it described in Genesis 13 it's supposed to be well watered like the garden of the Lord you go there today and it's all desert like it's it's not well watered like the garden of the Lord and they take soil samples from all of that region and they find that all of the soil has huge concentrations of salt abnormally high concentrations of salt and so in their paper they bring in all these astrophysicists and everything else they say that the meteorite came from the southwest, exploded right over the northern edge of the Dead Sea, which has a salinity nine times more than the ocean. So it's 35% of the Dead Sea is salt. Yeah, it's, you float. It's big, crazy Big guys float. Yeah. I've, I've seen a guy in the Dead Sea who's a big guy, but he floated. <laughs> I floated. So I'm a big guy. You, you see women go in there with like freshly shaved legs. Oof. You, you, they know it. They messed up. You, you can tell who has the hemorrhoid, too. Oh, gosh. <laughs> they, they get about to that area, and you yeah. see them start hopping around. Sorry for that. You're, you're welcome. That was, that was gross. <laughs> but anyway, tremendously salty. And so what happens is it says this frontal shock wave of this meteor coming in just scorched the Dead Sea and sent that shock wave filled with anhydride salts that covered all of the plant life, all of the land, all of these cities, and it left those lands entirely infertile. Because that's what you, in the ancient world, if you defeated an enemy city and you never wanted them to rebound again, you would go and you would salt their farmlands. Because when you scatter salt on farmlands, it makes things not want to grow again. And so hold on to that language of this frontal shockwave of melted salt. Should I read that abstract that talks about? Yeah, go for it. Yeah, yeah. This yeah. is this is directly from the study. Yes, I find this fascinating. Just in their own words, how the scientists wrote it. You did a great job, but here's the scientist actually writing. <laughs> it says we present evidence that a cosmic airburst destroyed Tal El Hammam, a middle-aged bronze city in southern Jordan Valley, northeast of the Dead Sea. And this is the wild part. The pr- proposed airburst was larger than the 1908 explosion over. How do you say that? Tungska. Uh, I'd have to look at it. Tungska, Russia. Russia. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Where a 50 Tungska. meter wide bolide detonated with a thousand times more energy than the Hiroshima atomic bomb. A citywide 1.5 meter thick carbon and ash rich destruction layer contains peak concentrations of shocked quartz, melted pottery and mud bricks, diamond like carbon, soot, iron, and whatever SI rich spherules are. <laughs> <laughs> more spherules from melted silicone, more spherules from melted plaster, and melted platinum, iridium, nickel, gold, silver, zircon, chromite, and quartz. Heating experiments indicate that temperatures exceeded 2,000 degrees Celsius, which I googled, 3,600 degrees Fahrenheit, so like you said, way hotter. Amid city-side devastation, the airburst demolished a 12-plus meters of the four- to five-story palace complex and a massive four meter thick mud brick rampart i mean just wild Mm -hmm. it melted all of these metals like the destruction was intense so it's just i think it's fascinating that right at you know middle bronze age you find what it was so what's the destruction that comes upon sodom so let let me let me finish the 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 story real quick and then we're going to come back to this because it is fascinating that right at this time period, you know, Sodom, we're told, is destroyed by fire and brimstone. Well, one of the other things that they find all over this site is little charcoal pe- 
pellets that like a shotgun have left this thing pockmarked with stones, literally like charcoal stones falling from this meteorite that's exploded and sent this huge hot shockwave filled with all these like shotgun pellets exactly like the Bible describes. And it just so happens that that happened over this region on this city 3,700 years ago at least. It's just perfect. You know, I love how the skeptics are like, oh, this inspired the story of Sodom. Yeah, all those news articles. <laughs> yeah. Like, just what a hot take that yeah. they said. Ugh. Somebody heard about all this and wrote it down, and that's how we got this account. So this went from being the major city of the region to where it became uninhabited for 700 years after mm -hmm. this event. And so what happens? You get all these men of Sodom that are at the door. They want to rape the angels. Lot comes out, says, no, please don't do this. These people have my protection and they say, get out of the way. This fellow came here as an alien. That's important. The, the word there means foreigner. He's not a member of our city, a citizen in our city. And now he wants to play judge. We'll treat you worse than them. Mm. And they kept bringing pressure on law and moved forward to break down the door. But the men, the angels inside, reached out, pulled Lot back into the house, shut the door, then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness, so they couldn't find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So the story goes, Lot runs out, he gets his sons-in-laws that are pledged to marry his daughters, and he says to them, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord's about to destroy the city. But the sons thought he was joking. That same root word is laughter again, which is all over the place. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. So the sons-in-law stay behind. When he hesitated... The men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and the two daughters, and they led them out of the city. So it's like they even have hesitant faith. So this is like the great moment for a lot. And he's still like, like you're Drag coming with us. Out of this. <laughs> yeah. And so verse 17, as soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, flee for your lives. Do not look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. And what does Lot do? He starts negotiating. No, my lords, please, your servant, if your servant has found favor in your eyes, you've shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me and I'll die. Look, Here's a town near enough for us to run to. It's small. Let me flee to it. It's very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. And he said, very well, I'll grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of, but flee there quickly because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That's why the town was called Zoar, which means to become lowly. It's low to the ground, which is interesting. Here's one of the, the more crazy parts of the story, and we're going to wrap up and then just talk about this. It says, verse, in verse 23, it says, By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah. It literally means like heavenly stone or fiery stone. From the Lord out of the heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, including all those living in the cities, and also the vegetation in the land. So you hear... 
it's multiple cities. Why does it have to be multiple cities? Like if God just didn't like Sodom, why not? But this is a meteor, so it's taking out region, and it's taking out all the vegetation because of the salt. But Lot's wife, and this is one of the weird ones, where when I was reading the archaeological report, I was like, maybe that makes sense. So all this is just total opinion, right? This isn't on line with the Word of God. But it says, when Lot's wife looked back, she became a pillar of salt. And I've always thought that's a really weird thing. Really odd. (laughs) You know, like they're walking along. And I've always understood this, like curiosity got the better of her. She wants to see what's going on. So she just kind of sneaks a peek over her shoulder and turns to salt. That is not what this is teaching here. When it says that she looked back, it, it literally means that her face turns around and she is now facing back she's headed back Hmm. and so the idea is she's separated from lot and the sons she misses her wealth she misses misses her comforts she wants to go back to sodom and so she has turned back that's where her heart is and now she starts heading back to sodom not going to the safe place of zoar so as she's heading back the meteor hits and what are we told from all the scientific reports it hits right over the dead sea and since this massive shock wave of anhydride salts that cover, encapsulate, and crust onto everything, killing it and making it infertile. And along the way, here comes Lot's wife. And I, my guess is, like, as, as this is being reported, like, this is where my imagination goes. So take this with a grain of salt because it's not, not scripture. Grain of salt. Right? <laughs> no pun intended. But you have everything. When they go back and they look at the destruction, everything's covered in salt. Yeah. Everything is just crusty, burnt salt, <laughs> you know? And so where's Lot's wife? She is scorched, she crusty, burnt salt, you know? And so a pillar of salt, now it's like, oh, maybe maybe that is what actually happened. And now that's just the way that they described it. So when it says that Lot's wife looked back, when Jesus is in the New Testament and he's talking about the second coming, one of the things that he says is, don't be like Lot's wife. Hmm. Because the idea is, when I come, you should be more excited. Your heart should be more excited about the treasures that are laid up for you in heaven than what you're leaving behind when the earth comes into judgment. Like, you don't want to be found on that day going, oh, but my retirement account and my nice car and my house, I'm going to lose it all. In fact, in the book of Revelation, when it describes the two different groups of people, there are the saints in heaven that are looking at God and they are praising him with everything they have, singing salvation belongs to our Lord and holy, 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 and all like all glory and honor and power are yours forever. They're, they're in, they're, absolutely enthralled and ecstatic about worshiping him. The other people are described as looking at the ancient city of Babylon and they are weeping. Why? Because all their wealth is there and it's all going up in smoke and they're devastated. And those are the people that are going to be condemned and the ones that are looking at the Lord and going, finally, our deliverance and righteousness and peace and the Lord is on his way and they're ecstatic. Those are the ones who go to heaven. And so Jesus is saying, don't be like Lot's wife. When the Lord comes to lead you out of the wicked place, which is this whole world, don't be saying, oh, but my money, my, my car. No, be like, all right, Lord, I'm going with you. Yeah, Wherever you want, <laughs> wherever you're taking me, I'm in. Like that's kind of the message here that Jesus pulls out. Even that makes it seem like 
like you said, she didn't just glance back. She's not just looking over her shoulder. Yeah. It seems like she ran God's back. God's not that petty. To, yeah, she ran back to everything. Correct. Like she wanted that more than safety. Mm-hmm. That's I'm almost certain that's the right interpretation. And the archaeology kind of sums that up with mm-hmm. the salt. Yeah, it's not I mean, like it makes God sense. God wasn't just like salt shaker. <laughs> yeah, you know what you, you know. get. Yeah, you, you just didn't listen. Salt. I've always imagined like she just went. <laughs> Like, just turned into the salt pillar out of nowhere, in the middle of nowhere, and someday she just, like, fell apart or got rained yeah. on or whatever. Wind just took her away. Yeah, right. No, 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 no. I think that's way more likely to be the right interpretation, and it makes sense to me. Now, yeah. all of a sudden, I see why God's doing that. But here's something that's also really fascinating that they found in the archaeology. So... If, if, if is this going to answer my other big question? What is your other big question? Uh, these guys' backgrounds. Oh, why Why Sodom is more wicked than everyone else? Well, it also seems crazy that every man in the city, both young <laughs> and old, came to rape these two newcomers. That seems like it's not just a couple bad apples. Right? Yeah. It's not a couple of bad dudes that are into some weird things but no this is seemed more coordinated than that yeah so why so that the, the archaeology actually does speak about that so so as collins is starting to excavate this town one of the things he finds is in the entry gate that leads into the city there was something there that you don't find in any canaanite architecture and that's columns so you know how when you get to the Greek world, you find columns and you get Doric capitals and Ionic capitals and Corinthian capitals. You study that in architectural class in college if you took it. But that you didn't find that stuff in ancient Middle Bronze Age Palestine architecture. Okay. You just did not find that. But in Sodom, it's there. And then as he's going around, he also finds lots of ancient you know, wrecked pottery that features bullheads. Like there's an obsession with the bull and if particularly downward facing to where the horns go down. So it looks like the bull's head is facing downward. Well, in the Aegean, they celebrated a sport that wasn't popular in the, the Palestine area that was called bull leaping, where a bull <laughs> is running at you. It puts its heads down and then you leap over it and you do kind of a, a cartwheel hmm. off of its back or a whatever. What is that called? Not a cart where you go straight up over, not to the side. A somersault? A somersault. Works for me. Sure, we'll go with that. Off of the back of the bull. And that was a sport. It was called bull leaping. And so this place is obsessed with Aegean sports. It's got Aegean architecture, and there's phallic pottery. So if you know what that word means. (laughs) Which also you find all over the place, but particularly you find it in Crete, where there was the Minoan culture. And the Minoans, you hear the Minotaur, which came out of the Minoan culture, where it's a half, half man, half bull obsessed with the bull and so what collins was saying is there's very clear and likely influence from the minoan culture on this city of sodom if it's sodom well that now brings up a whole new cultural context for what's going on right because and this is really disturbing so a warning for little ears don't listen with your kids in the car correct in minoan culture they had so They were incredibly perverse. I'll just put it that way. But one of the rituals that they would do in Minoan culture is the aristocracy was responsible for determining when young boys could become citizens or men of the city. And it involved a ritual that you can Google and look up. But what it involved is the aristocracy would come and they would form a party 
to conduct an official kidnapping, and it was kind of orchestrated. And so they would go to usually an eight-year-old boy, which is really terrible here. An eight-year-old boy, they would kidnap the boy, and one of them would take the boy out into the wilderness where they would have a honeymoon, trying to clean this up as much as I can. And they would have a honeymoon for two months. I mean, they're not officially married, but you're taken with this man out into the wilderness for two months. And among doing other perverse things, you're also learning how to be a man. And when you come back, if you're made to be a citizen of the city, then you're given armor, including a weapon. You're given a chalice, a cup to drink with, and you're given an ox to recognize that you now belong as a citizen of the city in Minoan culture. So when you have, okay, so that perversion as the background, now you have two men who come into the city. They've never been claimed. They've never gone through initiation, and yet they're staying inside the city. Now, if, if that Minoan piece of it is right, this is what they're doing. The whole city is coming and saying, you can't be here unless you go through initiation. Now, is that true, or is it just straight-up perversion? I don't know. <laughs> But it fits where the whole city is coming and banging on the door, demanding that they be brought out and put through this. And even Lot's original, like, no, you guys cannot sleep here. Like, I'm going to stop you from sleeping here at all costs. That seems like he knew what was going to happen if they stayed there. It wasn't like, hey, maybe this will work out for you. You probably shouldn't do this. No, it was like. He was really urging them, no, you need to come to my home for your safety and protection. Mm -hmm. And right at the beginning, in verse 9, you'll remember, the people of the city that are coming at the door say, "This this fellow came here as an alien, and now he wants to play judge. And so he says, they say, we'll treat you worse than them. And so they're focusing on the fact that Lot was an outsider who came in. Now these guys are coming in. We'll treat you worse than them. And so, like, they're focusing on the fact that these are not citizens. There's something to that fact that is pushing them. They haven't gone through this ritual. And so really, really, really gross, uh, the whole story. And, you know, the other side of that is either way, this is driven by absolutely revolting, disgusting perversion, whether it's a ritual or not. But it just goes to show the ancient world— before the ethics of Christianity and Judaism spread to bring, you know, a, a high view of sexuality and a high view of life and a high view of, of caring for people. The world was the Wild West. Like, it was absolute, crazy, chaotic ethics. So wrapping up in verse 27, it says, Early the next morning Abraham got up, returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down toward Sodom and Gomorrah, toward the land of the plain, And he saw dense smoke rising from the land, like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. And so thinking about this, because we've talked a lot about Lot being described as a righteous man, and yet there's hardly anything redeemable about him so far. Yeah. And I want you to notice here, because it's, again, it shows the heart of God. He shows mercy on Lot and brings Lot out of the catastrophe. Why? Because he remembered Abraham. And so because of his covenant with Abraham, he shows mercy to Lot. Well, what is that covenant with Abraham? It's going to be the salvation of the world through his descendant. And so because 
of that covenant. The wicked can be shown mercy. We're, we're no less recipients of that same mercy and grace than Lot was, and it's all because God remembered what Christ has done for us. That covenant made with Abraham that was fulfilled in Christ, God remembered the work that Christ has done on our behalf, and therefore when the greater judgment of the world falls, we will be escorted out of the city. That's, that's the story, and that's a, a glorious thing. And all through the scriptures, you find this pattern that you see again and again with judgments and Sodom being super obvious. But I w- let me just walk you through what you see in all of these judgments again and again. First off, God will send two messengers. So let's walk through, and you see this judgment style again and again. First one, Sodom. God sends two angels into the city of Sodom. One of the next major judgments is when God announces judgment upon Egypt, when he's calling his the slaves to come out and be redeemed. God will send two messengers, Aaron and Moses, into Egypt to confront Pharaoh. You fast forward when Joshua is going to conquer Jericho, and he sends the two spies into the city. And when you get to the book of Revelation, when it describes the final judgment, you're told that he sends two witnesses into Babylon, Revelation 11.3. And so... Whenever God is going to bring about a judgment, he always sends two messengers to kind of hearken and say, hey, judgment is coming. You need to make yourself right and get to the safe place. Embrace Christ. Seek the Lord. So then, in every one of these stories, you have God's remnant that's going to be spared from judgment. So everybody who was with Lot, Lot's family, is going to be spared. When you get to the Exodus, everybody who's behind Uh, who's in the Lord, who's behind a door marked with blood, is going to be spared. When you get to Jericho, everybody in Rahab's house is going to be spared. When you get to Babylon, everyone in Christ is going to be spared in the book of Revelation and the final judgment. So you you hear the echo. The next thing is everybody who's saved is saved behind a door. A door separates the righteous and the unrighteous, and so Sodom Everybody behind Lot's door, remember, he yanks Lot back inside the door and he spares them and everyone else is stricken with blindness behind a door, right? So Lot's safe behind a door. You get to the Exodus. Who is, who's saved there? It's those that are behind doors marked with the blood. You get to Jericho and who's going to be saved in the city of Jericho? Everyone behind Rahab's door. When you get to the final judgment, who is saved? It's everybody who is behind Christ who says in John 10, 9, I am the door, and those that come in through me will go out and find pasture. They'll be saved, right? So then in every one of these stories, you also find some member of God's community that's been initially rescued who says, man, I wish I could go back to the old world, right? So in the story of Sodom, that's Lot's wife. She looks back. She says, oh, that wealth is better than God leading me somewhere. I'm going back. When you get to Egypt, They're delivered through the Red Sea, and then immediately they're like, oh, I wish we could go back in Egypt where we had pots of meat, and they're constantly talking about, Moses, you brought us out here to die. We wish we could go back. In Jericho, right after Jericho's defeated, you have the guy Achan who's like, ooh, wealth, and he starts storing it up and disobeying God because he wants worldly things rather than God. Or in Babylon, we talked about this earlier, all the merchants and kings are all weeping and mourning because they're losing their stuff. So there's always somebody who's weeping and crying over the loss of stuff. And then finally, the judgment comes and the city's destroyed. So Sodom is destroyed by fire. God rains down fire and ice in Egypt. 
Jericho, it's burned with fire. And then the final judgment, the apocalypse, Babylon is consumed with fire. And so it's almost like telescopic judgments. And so the scriptures are telling you it's not going to be the identical story that we experience in the last days that Sodom or Egypt or Jericho faced. But the Lord works in predictable patterns. He sends, by the way, you might be listening to two podcast hosts. That didn't dawn on me. So maybe this is your warning. (laughs) Here's two messengers, right? But he uses, he works like this, and God is going to spare a remnant from judgment who take refuge behind the door. And so we're going to close out this podcast by saying, get behind the door. Jesus is the door. In him you find refuge from all judgment. The Lord has given safe harbor. He's given a way out. He's extended mercy to those who do not deserve mercy, and that is to be found in Christ. So get behind the door before the day comes when everyone outside will be left blind and face the judgment that their actions deserve. Amen. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We hope that was profitable. It's a heavy one. But a really, really fascinating one to me, especially when you consider all the evidence and some of the cultural context of all this, like God's patience is absolutely stunning that he allows this kind of wickedness without smashing everybody immediately. Why? Because there are people in Sodom that are going to be saved. There are people in Canaan that are going to be saved. There are people in America that have yet to be saved, and God's patience waits for them to come in the door and to find sanctuary. Uh, He is a good God. So anyway, it's been fun. We're going to pick up next week in Genesis 19 and cover 20, so we got to finish a really gross (laughs) part of of, of Lot's story, Um, but one that God will actually use to do some pretty beautiful things in the long run, which is his calling card. It's what he does. So thanks for joining us. We hope you have a blessed week, and we will see you again next week on the Out of Water Podcast. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.com.